Good morning and welcome to our live broadcast at First Presbyterian Church. It is a joy to come into your home today with good news about God who loves you. We are located in beautiful Uptown Columbus on the corner of 11th and 1st. We would love for you to join us for worship or just stop by and say hello. At First Presbyterian Church, we welcome you with grace and gratitude for God's love. Invite those who are able to please stand for our first lesson. It is from the Exodus in chapter 20, and these are the Ten Commandments. Listen now to the Word of God. And then God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, and you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol, whether in the form of anything that is in heaven above, or that is on the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing children for the iniquity of parents to the third and the fourth generation of those who reject me, but showing steadfast love to the thousandth generation of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not make wrongful use of the name of the Lord your God. The Lord will not acquit anyone who misuses His name. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. You shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male or female slave, your livestock, or the alien resident in your towns. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, but rested on the seventh day. And therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and consecrated it. Honor your father and your mother, so that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder, and you shall not commit adultery, and you shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or male or female slave or ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. From the 21st chapter of Matthew. When Jesus had entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came to him as he was teaching, and they said, By what authority are you doing these things, and who gave you that authority? Jesus said to them, I will also ask you a question. If you tell me the answer, then I will also tell you by what authority I do these things. Did the baptism of John come from heaven, or was it of human origin? And they argued with one another, If we say from heaven, he will say to us, why then do we not believe him? But if he says of human origin, we are afraid of the crowd, for all regard John as a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we do not know. And he said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated.
We're into the heart of football season, college football season, which I know has caused some of you great joy and others of you great pain. But it's that time of year. When you go to a football game, there's all sorts of other activities that go on around it that are fun, places to go, buildings to see, tailgates to be part of. I'm sure that you've all thought, well, what is it that ministers do when they go to their alma maters? We don't have football teams, right? Actually, some actually have uh, uh, Frisbee golf and that sort of thing, but that's a whole other issue. We go for lectures. We go to hear theologians and, and panelists uh, talk, and, and some of them are really, really great. They're, they're just like the best football games possible. They really are. They're engaging and exciting, and then some of them are just, well, sleepers. <laughs> Usually during uh, one of these events, the seminary library will have a used book sale because you can be sure that when you get a bunch of preacher-type people around, they're going to buy books. And so that is where I found myself one day several years ago at a lecture series. And I was in the basement of a uh, old library, and I came across a title that intrigued me. It was Great Heresies and Church Conflicts. Basic theology courses teach you with the heresies of, of the faith. What are the things that are wrong? What are the things where people have gone wrong and people have been condemned for it? But great heresies, there must be a story there. There, there are always stories when there are heresies, because heresy is, by its very nature, a controversial subject. Um, to, to, be a her to hold a heresy and to be called a heretic, you have to go against the, uh, the accustomed grain of thought. And people who are heretics and people who do hold heresies are condemned. You could even say they're damned by the church, and the church has been doing this for a long, long time. So I picked up the book and on the dust jacket was this blurb. It said, this book is an account of the heresies confronting the church, Judaism, Gnosticism, Arianism, Islam, Catharism, the Protestant Reformation, and what each of these heresies stood for and how the church met them. Now, I was a Protestant. I am a Protestant. I'm a Presbyterian. I grew up as a Baptist. I, I wandered around with the Episcopalians for a while. I've been a Protestant all my life, and I never thought of myself as a heretic. But there is a part of a thinking in, in the historic veins of, the, of Christianity that labels the Protestant Reformation and all of its children heretics. What does that mean? This is intriguing, and so I picked it up, and obviously I bought the book. The book was written by a man named Jean Gaetan, and he was a French philosopher and professor. He was writing in the 1960s, which was a time of great spiritual and intellectual and emotional ferment, not only in the church, but also in the world, all over the place. And what was happening in Rome, in the Roman Catholic Church, was the Second Vatican Council. And you could argue that what was happening in the Second Vatican Council has, in fact, paved the way for Pope Francis to come to the United States this, this week. There are definite ways in which that's connected. But Gaetan in the 1960s wrote, 
He said, heresy has two aspects. One is purely negative, and it stands out in strong relief. It is the only one that has been handed down with dogmatic language of the anathemata. In other words, if you're a heretic, you are anathematized, which means you are condemned against. There's judgment. Boom. You are given a, a punishment by the Roman church. That is what heresy, heresies mean. But he goes on, he says, there is a second aspect of heresy, less clearly visible, and that is a positive, at times, prophetic side of heresy. Hmm. That's something to think about. For the Roman church, as well as maybe for all of us, there's something to think about that those people with whom we do not agree and which we condemn, maybe those people have something to tell us. Maybe there is some prophecy in these heresies. As the heir of one of those heresies, the Protestant Reformation, we are all heirs of that, I would have to nod my head in agreement. I pray to God that we do have some prophetic word for the world today. So how do we sort it all out? How can you and I be faithful and honest Christians in the way that God has revealed God's own being to us? Who do we trust in our for our authority? Where do we go for our authority? How do we know? The opening verses of the Gospel of John, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word, capital W, the Word, Logos, the testimony of the Word by the power of the Spirit lives and gives witness to God's transformation in the world. But then verse 18 says, no one has seen God, yet Christ came to be the revelation the signpost. So in the Son of God, in the Messiah, we see something that we cannot glimpse completely on our own. And Scripture bears witness to that. From Genesis to Revelation, Scripture bears witness to that all throughout. Scripture talks about the chosen people, the Hebrews, and how they reveal, receive the Word of God that was revealed to them, and the Exodus, and in throughout their history, and in, in the hope of the Messiah. And in the New Testament, we have how the community of faith was formed from around Jesus and how that all played itself out. So from the time that Jesus lived, the, the years after that until now, we have been living with the Bible. And we look to the Bible as a way of revealing this, to, to make real in some great way the Word of God <clears throat> that was made flesh to dwell among us and live with us full of grace and truth. But how do we look at that? The, the Bible itself is contained of 66 books as, as we describe them in the Protestant church, 66 episodes. Some of them are quite long. Some of them are only a page or two. And they don't seem to flow in an orderly fashion there's a, a story there. There's a, there's a creation narrative, and there's a redemption narrative, and there's a salvation narrative. But how do they flow? We need to learn how to read them. If you've ever been to Birmingham, Alabama, you know that the streets in that city are a little strange, 
And if you've never not been to Birmingham and you're given and you find yourself there and you're find yourself on Fifth Avenue North and you need to be at an address on Fifth Avenue South, you may think, well, it's north-south. I'll just stop going north and I'll head south. I can see some heads nodding. You know where I'm going with this. If you've ever been in Birmingham, Alabama, you know that the roads do the the avenues do not run north and south. They run parallel to the railroad track. So if you're on Fifth Avenue North and you want to go to Fifth Avenue South, you have got to get off of Fifth Avenue South and go on a cross street because Fifth Avenue South is 10 blocks away across the railroad track. You have to know that. And when we read Scripture, we need to pay attention to that. And we need to look at how we how Scripture has come to us and how it's been formed. It's been, it has human fingerprints all over it, but it has God's heart in it. And so we study and we have people do archaeology and we learn together what the Scripture says to us. The Old Testament is full of wonderful things and certainly one of those is is the Ten Commandments, the law that is given to us. And the law is sort of code language for the way in which God is at work in the world. What are the proper set of relationships? John Calvin, 500 years ago, said there actually are three purposes for the law. The first purpose for the law is that it is to reveal God's righteousness and to allow us to realize that we don't measure up. That's the first purpose. The second purpose is that it provides structure for what is wrong. You don't have to have a particular religious conviction to realize that if you live in a, in a, in a society where there is lying and cheating and murdering, things are not safe. It's a way of saying there needs to be order in the world. But in addition to these two very commonly held interpretations of the law, there is a third thing that Calvin said. The law is to be the means by which we measure ourselves. It is, as Jones used in the prayer of illumination, it is a a word, the word is a, a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. It is a way for us to see clearly the way we are going. It's a way to, uh, to measure how we are doing. It's a way of reading the map of life that we are there. Jesus said he came to fulfill the law, not to abolish it. He came to fulfill it. He came to show us how to progress in our relationship with God and with each other. And that is a task and an effort that takes time. And the crowds, the religious authorities, come to, came to Jesus and they said, who told you to do this? By what authority are you doing this, God, Jesus? We see what you're doing. Who told you? Who, just who do you think you are? And Jesus responds with another question. He says, you tell me. You tell me. Answer this question about John the Baptist. And they didn't. The religious leaders didn't want to engage that. They, they sort of took the which way the wind is blowing test, and they said, we don't know. And Jesus said, well, 
You figure it out. You figure it out. That's, you can understand how that might happen in a conversation or a debate, but the question for us then is, how do we figure it out? How do we take this law that we have, how do we take this revelation of God and Jesus Christ, and how do we figure out what authority He has for us and we have that we, we have and we, we need in the world? How do we figure it out? Throughout the history of the church, the way the church has figured it out is to get together and to study and to practice and has done exactly what the title of that book said, Great Heresies in Church Councils. There's been a council, and we've said, this is a heresy, and this is, this is what it means to be a Christian. And that's where creeds come from. That's where statements come from. But to say it is this way and it is not that way also opens up to what are the possibilities that are there? Do we simply have to tell other people that they are condemned for not agreeing with us? Or is there a way to understand our faith more deeply, to enter into what Guyton said might be even a prophetic side of hearing other people's out? I'm not suggesting that we have to agree with everybody else who has a different opinion than ours. In fact, that would probably be a little problematic and troubling. But we do need to figure out what we do believe and who we are. And there are several ways to do that. One is we do that by coming to worship. We also do that as we study. We have adult classes here in the church. There are other groups in the city, Bible studies and covenant groups. Those groups come together, and through that, we work at what we understand and what we believe. We do that in prayer. In this church, there are two group prayer times that I, I want to hold up for you that, that I hope you know about. The Thursday morning men's prayer breakfast and the Wednesday morning intercessory prayer group. Those are times when people come together and they pray and they talk about what's going on in their lives. There are other ways in which we figure this out, and that is by serving in all the myriad activities, not just for good causes, but so that we can see Jesus' face in other people, so that we can see Jesus in the world around us and share that as well. We pay attention. We pay attention to our geography. We pay attention to our maps, and we adjust as we go. We encounter God through the power of the Holy Spirit in life, and that's a very tender place. One of the best clergy colleagues I have ever had was a, a Jewish rabbi. His name was Joel. That's kind of nice. I could be talking to Joel. We arrived in the same community in North Atlanta about the same time, and the community suffered a very serious tornado where many people in his synagogue and in my congregation, as well as all over that area, were affected. Their homes were destroyed or, or harmed in some form or fashion, and so the churches and the synagogues came together to try to find out how we could respond to the faith needs of the community. He was a Jew, and I was a Christian. But as we 
developed our relationship as we concluded our work, we realized that we also had a personal affinity for each other. We kind of liked each other. And so we would go out to lunch and we would talk about different things. And we talked about how, how we shared things in common as well as how we had things that were apart. A significant portion of the Bible that we hold, he called the Hebrew Scriptures. We call it the Old Testament. But there's commonality there. There are things that we share. A significant moment in our relationship occurred one day. We had been discussing how to actually create an event that we might work together with. And the question would be, what does it mean to be a Christian? What does it mean, what does it mean to be a Jew? And how can we be connected even though we do have some very basic and honest differences? We were talking about the faith, and, and he looked at me and he said, you know, Joel, you don't have to worry about converting me. And I'm pretty sure I don't have to worry about converting you. But if you don't say Jesus is Lord, I'm not going to. Wow. If I don't say Jesus is Lord, who will? As disciples of Jesus Christ, if we don't say Jesus is Lord, who will? It's, no one else is under that obligation. We do that because we understand that God has called us. And not everybody's going to agree with us on that. And there could be shades of differences of opinion within the Christian body as to what that means. But to say that Jesus is Lord is to confess that we understand through Jesus Christ God did something remarkable in the world. And it's something that we think the world ought to know about. And we want to do our part to make it known and shared. And that is wonder, and that is our calling as a community of faith, First Presbyterian Church. That is our calling as Christians to let the world know Jesus is Lord. And Jesus makes a difference in my life and in your life and in the world. And we have to acknowledge as much difference as God makes in Jesus for us, there may be people who will not choose to make that acknowledgement. And we live in the tension that is there. God made the Word flesh to come and dwell among us. God made the law, shared the law, so that we could know God's righteousness, so that we could have good order. And God gave us the law and the Scripture, and God gave us Christ so that we could measure our own progress, our own pathway to how we shared the life and the joy of Jesus Christ now. May we do that in such a way that we give honor to God and that we acknowledge and celebrate all the relationships that we have in this life. Thanks be to God. Amen.